Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by listeners and by Lee Auto Malls. Introducing Lee Plus, a pre-owned vehicle maintenance program. Learn more at leeauto.com. Welcome to the latest edition of Maine's Political Pulse. After skipping out on you for a few weeks, I'm Erwin Gratz. Happy to be back for another chat with our political team, Statehouse Bureau Chief and Chief Political Reporter Steve Missler and political reporter Kevin Miller. The legislature can affect many parts of your life, depending on the measures that are taken up and enacted during this six-month session. But how much do we know about what effects this year's crop of legislation might have? Kevin Miller, this is a question you've addressed before, but one that lingers. Yeah, thanks, Erwin. We've seen a proliferation or even, I'd say, a small explosion in the number of these vague bills that are essentially a title the description, and that's it. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, these these concept draft bills get introduced every legislative session and pretty much serve as placeholders until the sponsor or committee or legislative staff can come up with the actual language. And sometimes that's fine because they may be still working out how to address a really complicated issue. The problem is that oftentimes these concept draft bills remain concepts until the very last second. And I don't know how many times Steve and I or people who advocate on uh, one topic or another here at the Statehouse, instances where they've seen the actual language gets dropped pretty much on the day of the public hearing. And as Dana Connors, uh, the outgoing president of the Maine State Chamber of Commerce, told us, that that's, makes it really hard to have an opinion on what could be a major policy change when you don't know what the what the bill actually says until the public hearing starts. Um so we ran the numbers again, and so far this legislative session, 21% of the bills that have been printed are these vague placeholder bills. That's down from 28% a month ago, but it's more than double the number we saw last session and about quadruple what we've seen in other legislative sessions over the past decade. It's not a partisan issue. Everyone's doing it. And there are certainly sometimes good reasons to have these, like say if a entire committee is going to work on something for weeks or months you know, to come up to uh, with a solution, say, for affordable housing. But it does have potential implications for transparency and participation, and that's why uh, we in the press and others are concerned. Steve, let me ask you, is part of this is a result of the way the legislature often operates? Because a new legislature gets elected in November, and then essentially they get a month to submit any legislation that they're going to have a reasonable chance of seeing taken up by the legislature for the next two years. That's a good point. And I'm glad you brought it up, Erwin, because that's actually a point that Republican State Senator Rick Bennett has made. He actually thinks that the root cause of concept drafts or the proliferation of them is this pressure. You know, this is your chance to submit bills. And you really only have about a month to do that after you're sworn in into office. And what he has advocated for is the elimination of what's known as cloture, which is basically the deadline to submit bills. He thinks that that deadline is contributing to this proliferation of concept drafts. The only uh, quibble that one might have with that is that there's been cloture for years. And we haven't seen this kind of explosion in concept drafts. And, And actually, this session, they actually gave them a couple of extra weeks to submit bills. So... It's it's a little bit tricky. It's very process oriented. But Kevin's point, I think, is the most uh, salient one, which is that, you know, these hearings that they're holding on these bills, you can make the case they're almost performative in some ways, because 
people show up to testify on something that they haven't even seen or read. And so they get up having a vague idea what the topic is and they'll testify, but they have to qualify that testimony. So what they're saying is not informed by the bill. It's essentially just making sure that their voice is heard. And from a public's uh, perspective, I think it's 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 just hard to find out what what is going on up there and and what lawmakers are actually doing. Right. And not to go back to schoolhouse rock here, but it's worth remembering that a bill is a potential future law. Democratic Second District Congressman Jared Golden is a veteran of military service, which no doubt tells him just how important air support can be. Um, Steve Missler, that might explain a letter Golden signed on to this week about Ukraine. Congressman Golden seems to be keenly aware that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is approaching a critical juncture and that control of the skies there might prove decisive in the conflict. That's why he and a contingent of Democrats and Republicans uh, have been asking the Biden administration to approve the transfer of uh, F-16 fighters to Ukraine. Now, the F-16 is is not the most uh, state-of-the-art warplane that the U.S. possesses, but it's certainly a capable one that Ukraine could benefit from. And Golden and this group have argued in a letter to the White House that the F-16 could tilt the war in Ukraine's favor. The problem, however, is that it will take time to transfer these aircraft to Ukraine, and it will take time to train Ukrainian pilots to fly and maintain them. This week, a Pentagon official told the House Armed Services Committee, of which Golden is a member, that it would take uh, 18 months to learn to fly the F-16 and that and, and, uh, and also maintain it. And that's certainly not soon enough to benefit Ukraine this spring or summer. Also, that same official seems skeptical that the F-16s were the best use of American aid to Ukraine. And I think that's important because there's increased scrutiny of weapons transfers in the war and of uh, security spending in general. According to the Congressional Research Service, the U.S. has sent uh, $34 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since 2014, but nearly all of it has come since the uh, Russian invasion a year ago. Hmm. Uh, Congressman Golden also took a vote this week that won't make him too popular among Democrats who support various causes. Kevin, what was that all about? Well, Congressman Golden is not afraid of bucking his party or, or frustrating the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. We've seen that over and over again during his four plus years in office. And that's because he's a more moderate and some would say probably say a conservative Democrat representing a fairly conservative district. Uh, but in this most recent case, Representative Golden joined uh, House Republicans to vote for a resolution that would repeal a Biden administration policy that deals with environmental and social issues in retirement plans. So it's kind of complicated, but it's known as Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG for short. And it's basically a way for corporations to track or measure how they're doing on some key environmental sustainability and social measures. And it's also used in the finance sector to track how investment firms are doing in these areas. But some conservatives don't like ESG, and they've incorporated it into this growing crusade against wokeism on the left. And in this case, apparently it's woke capitalism. And this vote in the House uh, aimed to block a Biden administration initiative that would make it easier for, for retirement plans to consider ESG in their investment decisions. Uh, Representative Golden was the only Democrat in the House to vote with Republicans on this. Uh, but over in the Senate, 
two Democratic senators from more conservative states, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and uh, John Tester from, from Montana, joined with Republicans to block or overturn uh, a federal rule in a Senate bill. So, you know, and we checked in with Golden's uh, office on this issue and a spokesperson told us that work in the congressman's opinion, working class Mainers retirement funds should be, quote, invested to maximize positive returns, period. A familiar face returned to the airwaves this week. Steve, he became familiar touting a safety message. But what's Jim Wright talking about now? Yeah, so Jim Wright became something of a local celebrity back in the 90s when he was featured in Central Maine Power ads that basically warned people not to touch power lines, as in never ever touching power lines. Now, CMP has brought Jim Wright and his never ever tagline back to warn against the takeover of CMP in Versant, which Maine voters will be asked to approve in November. In these ads, Wright uses a lot of the well-worn arguments against the so-called pine tree power initiative, which effectively buys out the current utilities assets and replaces the ownership with a nonprofit uh, operated by an elected board. Now, those claims by CMP are hotly contested by the group leading this ballot initiative known as Our Power. The problem, though, Irwin, is that Our Power is currently at a disadvantage in terms of getting its message out via television ads. The CMP-led group putting out this ad amassed nearly $11 million by the end of last year, and you can bet that there's a lot more where that came from. Now, recall a couple of years ago when CMP dumped something like $65 million in a referendum that was aimed at halting its corridor project. So for them, money doesn't seem to be a problem. We'll have to wait and see if it can. It remains a problem for our power, which posted $300,000 in contributions at the end of last year. That's certainly not enough to go toe-to-toe in television ad wars, but perhaps they're taking a different tack or simply hoping that the uh, anti-CMP and Versant sentiment out there is enough. Uh, And the one thing I'd add here is that we also have the secondary um, ballot initiative that's being pushed by CMP and its allies, which would basically seek to counter the the Our Power initiative. But what's interesting here is that um, the signatures on that are still being reviewed, and there is a possibility that it might not qualify for the ballot in November. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. February uh, was Black History Month, and uh, Kevin, President Biden recognized some Maine-made Black history in the past week. Yeah, that's right, Erwin. Uh, House Speaker Rachel Talbot Ross of Portland, who is the first Black lawmaker in Maine history to hold that powerful position in the legislature, uh, she was invited to the White House to to participate in Black History Month events, along with four other Black House speakers from around the country. Uh, She apparently uh, attended a evening ceremony with President Biden and Vice President Harris, who is the country's first Black VP. And Speaker Talbot Ross and others met with other senior administration officials, including uh, Ambassador Susan Rice, to talk about ways that states can collaborate with the federal government on issues, uh, things like working families, uh, affordable housing, expanding economic opportunities to marginalized communities and voting rights. That's uh, Kevin Miller, Maine Public State House reporter, joined by our State House Bureau Chief and Chief Political Correspondent Steve Missler. And that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. Don't forget, you can always read more on the newsletter that Steve and Kevin put together. It drops on Friday mornings. We'd be happy to email you a copy. 
You can sign up at mainpublic.org slash pulse. We also air excerpts of this podcast on Friday afternoons, All Things Considered. Music is by Rob Holt. I'm Erwin Gratz. We'll be back next week with another edition of Maine's Political Pulse.